the message tonight is taken from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, and the first part of verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1a. Let's read it. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've just finished the seven letters of Jesus Christ to the churches of Asia Minor at the end of the first generation of New Testament believers. So you have the oldest letters to mature churches. Here we have one of the first letters of Jesus Christ to an infant church. It isn't John that is being used, but Paul to write this letter. And this is one of the first uh, books of the New Testament that was written. So God willing, we will work through this first letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. Now, when we write a letter, we start, if you still write letters, that is, uh, most people write emails these days, but there's something about having a letter, isn't there? there? There's something more personal about it. And when we write letters, we usually start with dear so-and-so, the person who's going to receive it, and then there's the main body of the letter, and we end the letter with yours and the name of the person sending it. In Paul's day, they started their letters with the name of the person writing it. And that is what we're looking at tonight. And then the recipients of the letter. So who is writing this letter? What names have we got? Not just one name, but there are three people mentioned here. So my first point is the three writers of this letter. I know it's Paul that is uh, the main writer, but he identifies three people, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Let's just go through these to begin with. Who is Paul? Well, we all know who this man is. He's none other than the great apostle Paul, the man that God has set apart to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a religious bigot, if I can put it like that. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. He thought that he was doing God's service in persecuting the church. That's how deceptive the human heart can be. A person like Saul of Tarsus thinking that he's doing God's work in destroying the work of God. And we know what happened to Saul of Tarsus. He had that conversion experience outside the gates of Damascus and his name changed. He had a new nature, which is signified by the new name, and Saul of Tarsus became Paul. Do you know what Paul means? Little one. Little one. Isn't that a wonderful transformation? 
this self-righteous bigot who thought that he was big. He thought that he was a somebody. The moment he saw the risen Christ, he fell down and became a nobody. And Christ then so empowered him by his spirits that he became the greatest of all the apostles, not because he was empowered by his own strength, but the power of Christ in him. Now, do you notice something different here to Paul's other letters about the way he names himself? It's just Paul. It's not Paul the apostle. In most of the other letters, he identifies himself as the apostle. But here, it's Paul. Why is that? Well, again, there is an indication here of his humility. And he wasn't defending his apostolic authority in Thessalonica. But he says, I'm just Paul. I'm just Paul. Here, here he is, this great man of God. But he doesn't consider himself in that light. I'm just Paul. Who else? Silvanus. This is the Greek rendering of Silas. Who was Silas? Silas was Paul's companion on the second missionary journey. To begin with, Paul travelled with Barnabas, but they saw things differently with John Mark, so they went their different ways, and Paul from then on took Silas. We first come across Silas in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, along with Barnabas, and he is also mentioned in Acts 15 as a prophet. Now, what does that mean? In the New Testament, there was an office of prophet because the scripture hadn't been given in its totality at that stage. So God gave his word to certain people and they were called prophets. And Silas was one of those. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't an apostle. An apostle had to have been a witness to the physical resurrected Christ. Paul was an apostle, a sent one. Silas was a prophet, but he was still helping the apostle. But Paul doesn't distinguish him, does he? He says, I'm Paul, and here's Silas. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul puts Silas preaching on the same level as his own. Isn't that lovely? And then Timothy. Who's Timothy? Well, we all love Timothy, don't we? Uh, Timothy was a young man that Paul had encountered uh, on uh, their missionary trip to Lystra, and Timothy was a believer, and he had a good reputation, and he was a shy young man. There is the phrase, timorous Timothy. He was very timid. And yet Paul saw in this uh, shy young man, lacking in confidence, God's hand. And so Paul thought very highly of him. So by this second missionary trip, we read that it's not just Silas, but Timothy was also assisting the great apostle Paul. Uh, Timothy is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 1, along with Silas and Paul in terms of the preaching. Think about that just for a moment. Paul, the greatest preacher ever, mentioning Silas and Timothy's preaching in the same breath. Now, that would have encouraged me if I was starting out as a preacher. And Timothy eventually became Saul, uh, Paul's son, didn't he? 
in the faith. And Timothy was given the responsibility of pastoring the important church at Ephesus. So these are the three people that are mentioned at the start of this letter. Paul, Silas, Timothy. What have we got here? It's a team. It's not a one-man ministry. It's a team. Yes, Paul is the leader, but he's not distinguishing himself from the other two in terms of their office. Uh, Silas was just a prophet, or just a prophet, not an apostle, I mean. Timothy was an evangelist. But Paul says, we're all equal. We're a team. But Paul, as the leader, was the first among equals. But he still had helpers. Isn't that a lovely, lovely model for us to emulate in our day? You know, this is how the church is operated in the New Testament. Whenever God uh, worked and believers were raised up and a church began, uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas and others, uh, they made sure that there was a team of elders to look after each church. Do you believe in a team ministry? In Wales, we have got much to learn here, I think. Uh, I was brought up in a Welsh nonconformist chapel, as many of you would have been. And what did they call the pastor in those days? He wasn't the pastor. He was a Gwenny dog, the minister, the minister. You kind of uh, put the minister on a pedestal. Uh, I've heard accounts, I don't think this would happen anymore, but the poor minister would even be put in the front room on his own to eat his Sunday lunch. (laughs) He was untouchable, and it would be the minister that would be looked upon to do everything. If it wasn't the minister, then it wasn't good enough. That's not the New Testament, is it? It's a team. If the Apostle Paul, the most gifted evangelist, preacher, missionary, theologian, if he needed a team, who are we to say that we don't? Different gifts, different personalities, but all coming from the same Savior. It's not Paul who's the head of the church in Thessalonica, it's Christ. But Christ gives gift to the church. And Christ, the great shepherd, gives under-shepherds. And through these, the gifts come. And through the leaders, then, the gifts are distributed, aren't they? The Spirit distributes gifts to all the members. Do you see yourself that we're all part of the body of Christ? We're all gifted in different ways. But what we're thinking of here this evening is the leadership team. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Let me just read what one commentator says. It's a bit of a long quotation, but I am sure you'll find this helpful. The benefits of this team include emotional, physical, and spiritual supports, 
a balancing of complementary gifts and a combination of fellowship and accountability that reduces the likelihood of a leader falling into sin. Camaraderie among a ministry team encourages similar fellowship in the church and encourages all believers to participate in the work of spreading the gospel and building the body of Christ. I wonder if the number of pastors that have fallen in recent years, if that would have been as prominent if they would have viewed themselves as the Apostle Paul sees himself here, as part of a team, accountable to one another, ultimately under the headship of Christ, and complementing one another. My friends, what I'm trying to say is, at the Heath, we are a team. It's not a one-man show. If it is a one-man show, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) But his method is to give pastor and elders. Please pray for us as a team that we would enjoy closer fellowship together as a team, that as a team we would work together using the gifts that God has given to us. Uh, Pray uh, for the church workers. Are they not part of the team God has given to them? Lovely gift to use amongst us. Uh, Pray if we are to have a trainee, if we're to have an assistant, that like Paul and Silas and Timothy, they would be part of a team, a team. And may that then uh, communicate itself to you so that we're all parts of a team. What a team. Now then, let's look at the recipients of this letter to the church of the Thessalonians the church of the Thessalonians this team was traveling together imagine having this mission team we've just had a mission imagine not just Roger Carswell but Paul Silas and Timothy coming to our church imagine that and they had evangelized Asia Minor modern-day Turkey And their desire was to carry on taking the gospel in Asia Minor. But these men weren't deciding uh, off their own bats where to take the gospel. They were really trusting the Lord. They believed in God's providence. Do we believe in God's providence? I don't think we do. (laughs) We say we believe in God's providence. But practically we don't, do we? We don't trust the Lord. And so because they're trusting in him... God made it very clear that he was closing the door in Asia Minor to them. And God, by a vision, a man of Macedonia in Greece, in Europe, appeared to them and invited them over. God opened the door to Europe. He shut the door to Asia and he opened a big door of opportunity to take the gospel into Europe. And we know the story. Acts 16, they go to Philippi. They concentrate not on the villages, but on the big cities. If they go to the cities, from there the gospel can spread. And in Philippi, they see two remarkable conversions. Lydia, uh, a lady from Turkey, is converted. The jailer is converted. A church is set up in Philippi. But Paul and Silas have to leave Philippi. And after leaving Philippi, where they come to next is Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. 
even today, it's the second city in Greece. It was the main city in that part of Greece in Paul's day. It was on an important highway. And what did this mission team do? Oh, they concentrated on the synagogue. That was Paul's custom. We had that in our reading. He went to the synagogue. Paul was a Jew, so he went to the place where the Jews gathered and used that as an opportunity, a God-given opportunity, to preach Christ from the Scriptures. How long did they stay there in the synagogue for? Three Sabbaths. We had Roger for one Sabbath a week. Imagine having Paul, Silas, and Timothy for three weeks. Three weeks. And what happened when... Paul preached, and Silas and Timothy would have joined him as well, in the synagogue. Well, we were told in the reading, let me read again the verses from Acts 17. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, the Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And what happened? What happened was this. God moved. It wasn't Paul doing this. It was God, the Holy Spirit, moving in the hearts of people. And so some of the Jews were converted. Uh, mostly it was Greeks, Gentiles that were converted. And of their number, uh, prominent women. And this stirred up uh, the leaders of the synagogue uh, to jealousy, and they uh, stirred up trouble uh, amongst the people, and they caused a mob, a group of thugs, uh, to uh, go to the place where Paul, Silas, and Timothy were staying, Jason's house, and they managed to drag Jason out of the house and get him to appear before the magistrates, and the magistrates are told, these are the men who, what, turn the world upside down. They've come to us, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy are put on bail, and they are allowed to escape. What did Paul and Silas do in Thessalonica? What did they do? I'm not trying to be provocative here, but they did not plant a church. They did not get excited about church planting. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they went to Thessalonica as they went to Philippi at great risk to their life. If you had been arrested and imprisoned in one place, <laughs> how likely are you to go to the next place and do exactly the same thing that got you into trouble in the first place? <laughs> they were taking great risks. What drove them to do that? It wasn't a plan to church. It was to preach the gospel. It was to lift Christ up. It was to tell men, women, and children, whether religious or non-religious, that they had immortal souls that needed to be saved and that God had provided a savior in Jesus Christ. That's what they did. That's what they did. Why am I mentioning that? I'm mentioning it because I think we've lost that vision. There is much today about church planting, and I can see where it's coming from, but I don't see church planting in the New Testament. I see gospel preaching, and as the gospel is preached in Thessalonica, people are saved as a result of God moving, 
And then what have you got? You've got a church then. You've got a church then. And there's all the difference in the world between preaching the gospel, evangelizing, and being clear, uh, being uh, relevant, uh, having people come in, and all those things we want, all those things. But there's all the difference in the world between that and God moving. God moving. Isn't that where we fall short? That power of God which you can't create. I can't. I can't do it. Roger Caswell can't do it. If we had the Apostle Paul here tonight, he can't do it. Paul would say, weakness, fear, trembling, that's all I've got to offer you. And it's the same with me, my friends. None of us can raise a person from the dead. That's what a conversion is being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Only one person can do it, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all power in heaven and on earth has been given. In his hands. What do we do? We just lift him up. <laughs> That's what preaching is. That's what evangelism is. That's what living the Christian life is all about, being witnesses to Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit that does the impossible. And notice what happened in Thessalonica. As God was blessing, what happened? Did they just have a lovely time? <laughs> Did they just enjoy themselves and forget the cruel, bad world outside? Oh, no. The cruel, bad world outside attacked them. The religious world attacked them because there's a devil, and the devil is as real as the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever Jesus Christ is lifted, the devil is put down. And so the devil doesn't like Christ being preached. And so the devil, it shouldn't surprise us, stirred up the leaders of the synagogue to cause trouble. Do you get discouraged if there's opposition to the gospel? You shouldn't. It's the most encouraging sign of all. Because it shows that Satan is worried. What should worry us is when things are calm. If there's trouble, it should encourage us greatly. Because Satan is always, always attacking the preaching of the gospel. So, Thessalonica... A city just like our own. Nothing special to commend it. And three men came. Three men, two of whom had been in prison a few days before. They probably had the scars to prove it. That hadn't put them off preaching the gospel. But it had probably given them a renewed vigor to do it. And they do exactly the same thing as they did in Philippi. And there's no gimmicks. God just comes by his spirits. And people are saved. And there's trouble. And it's a repeat of Philippi. Paul and Silas and Timothy are not imprisoned. But they have to leave in the night. And what happens? I just want to go through this quickly. 
this is not really a sermon. I'm just trying to lay the groundwork for our studies in this epistle. Uh, they leave and they travel south to Berea, to Berea, and then they do exactly the same thing there. They show from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and people are converted and then there are problems because the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica, they come down to Berea and stir up trouble. So Paul has to leave. Uh, Silas and Timothy stay behind. Paul is taken to Athens where he meets up again with Silas and Timothy. Paul can't sleep. He's worried sick about the infant church in Thessalonica. And so he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica while he's at Athens to see how the believers are faring. And then Paul goes on to Corinth. And as he's waiting in Corinth, I'm sure he's biting his nails because he wants Timothy to come back and tell him how the believers in Thessalonica are doing. Here are people converted from mostly a non-religious background and they are being opposed and they are not taught uh, very little and he's worried. He's worried. He needn't have been. It's a great <laughs> encouragement that the great apostle Paul is worried. When you get anxious about the church, Chris Reese was preaching yesterday in Howell's induction about tears. How the Apostle Paul shed tears for the church. How the burden of the cause of Christ often gave him sleepless nights. It's a good sign when we're anxious about the church. But you know, he should not have been to the church of the Thessalonians. It wasn't just the church in Thessalonica. Physically, the church was in Thessalonica, but at the same time, the church was in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us need to be anxious about the church. The church in the heath is also in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Physically, we are here in this part of Cardiff, but spiritually, we're in God. In God. Do you realize what the church is? Do, do, do you know what the word church means? We again have got ourselves tied up into knots today. We always talk about doing church. How do we do church? Post-COVID, how do we do church? And we tend to think of organizational matters. But that's not what the church is about. The word church means gathered people. And it's not just a gathering of any Tom, Dick or Harry. You can have gatherings of people in other parts of the city, but that's not the church. You can even have a gathering of Christians, but that's not necessarily the church. The church is the gathered assembly of God's people. That's different. It's taken from the same word as in the Old Testament for the congregation of the children of Israel. They were gathered out of the world. They were saved from the wicked world. They were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And they were separated unto God. And they were traveling through this world as pilgrims, as those that didn't belong here, the gathered people of God. Now, the New Testament church is exactly that. We are gathered, gathered, different ways. God has gathered us. The great shepherd has gathered us together to himself. 
We are God's workmanship. We need not be anxious. We need not be anxious. When when I first went to a gospel preaching church, I thought, what have these people got? I'd never seen anything like it before. You see, for me, a church or chapel, as I would call it, was a gathering of religious people. But that wasn't the church. Just as a gathering of people in other religions isn't the church. But when I first came across people that had been born of the spirits and had been redeemed from the world and were in Christ, I thought, this is something completely different. I've never come across something like this before. This is of God. And that's what we are, my friends, here. That's what other fellowships in the city are. That's what other churches around the world are. We are the gathered people of God. And one day we will all be gathered in the great beyond. Don't you feel proud to be part of the gathered people of God? When we speak dismissively of the church, we are speaking dismissively of the Savior of the church. Where are we? We're in Cardiff, as the church in Thessalonica was in that city. But at the same time, we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. What does it mean to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? We're united to them. What does that mean? Um, I mentioned, uh, was it last Sunday or a few Sundays before, about union, union. When a couple is married, they are joined in union together. Nothing can break that union apart from death. Well, it's the same when we are joined by faith to Christ. We are in Christ by union to him. He is our husband We are his betrothed, and death won't break that union. Death will be a flowering of that union into something perfect. So do you see yourself as in God the Father and in Christ? Do you see yourself as the workmanship of the triune God, chosen in eternity by God the Father, God the Son coming in time 2,000 years ago to execute that work so that we could be redeemed, and then God the Holy Spirit coming to you. I don't know how long ago it was, but calling you, regenerating you, giving you faith, joining you to Christ, giving you that spiritual chemistry which you can't explain, can you? I can't explain it. I can't explain why I feel a bond to you here, uh, like Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're all different people, and yet there's something that binds us together, which is uh, more, more important than uh, the differences that we have. I can't explain it. I can't explain what binds me to a person who is so much older than me, and we wouldn't share any interest, but there is something that goes deeper I can't explain why when I go to other parts of the world, why if the worship is different to what I'm comfortable with, why if the language is different to what I can understand, even if I can't understand the language, I can't understand why my heart beats within me because there's a bond, a spiritual bond. I can't understand, but it's best felt than felt. 
We're in Christ. We're in Cardiff, but we're in Christ. Praise God. We're in Christ. I've got to come to a conclusion here. Paul need not have been concerned. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord is the word for Jehovah. The Lord, God. Jesus is deliverer, saviour. Christ is God's anointed, the Messiah. And we're in him, in him. The church's one foundation, we sang, is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word, elect from every nation. Isn't that shown here tonight? Elect from every nation. Yet one or all the earth, her charter, her message of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. We need not get anxious, though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed. Aren't we sore oppressed at the moment in Wales? We're just being attacked left, right, and centre. Sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet, is there a yet in your experience? Yes, I'm concerned about the state of the church in our land. Yes, it gives me sleepless nights. Yes, I know something, just a little, of what Paul was talking about when he mentioned tears to the Ephesian elders. Yes, I've got some scars to show for suffering for the Saviour. But, but, she on earth hath union. With God, the three in one. And let me tell you, she's absolutely secure. She's absolutely safe. If the worst happens, what's the worst that can happen? If the laws change and we're not allowed to preach the gospel, what do we do then? Well, we preach the gospel, don't we? Even if we're arrested. Even if we're persecuted. Even if we're martyred. That's just a final crown. Well, there we go. <laughs> Paul, Silas, and Timothy, a team. A team with a gospel message. They weren't primarily interested in just planting churches. They had this God-given charter. And they were led of the Spirit. And God moved. God moved. That's what we need, my friends. We need God to move. He has moved a bit. But we need God to move in a mighty, mighty way. Maybe he's preparing us for that. That's why we meet every Wednesday night, to pray that God would send his spirits. And when God moves, the devil attacks. But we need not fear, because it's Christ's work. Oh, do, do we trust in God's providence? And like Paul, Silas, and Timothy, do we see uh, Paul... He just went to the cities. He went to the synagogues. Do, do we see the mission field that is there? Do, do we have a burden for the chapels in Wales? Think of Wynne and Angela in West Wales. It's a spiritual desert there. Do we see that even the chapels can be an opportunity for the gospel these days? Do we thank God for men like Ben, for men like those who have trained with us and gone out, that they can go to these chapels and preach like Paul preached in the synagogue? Do we have a concern for uh, our country? Do we see the immigrants that have been coming in over the years not as a problem, but as an opportunity to preach the gospel? Ian and Salome, 
they need not be in the Middle East now. They can be as effective in Cardiff Bay, reaching groups that at one time they needed to be in the Middle East to reach. Do we believe in God? That's what I'm asking. Do we have this confidence, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy had, that God has called them, and that God has given them a gospel to preach, and that God, by his grace, has made them part of this wonderful thing called the Christian church, which is unlike any other organization on earth. And that as we look at 1 Thessalonians, we'll learn something more about what the church is all about uh, for his namesake. Amen.